0: Ladies and gentlemen, you're all very welcome here tonight to the second meeting of this year of the Contemporary Theology Group. Um, the, I gather we have clashed with two other major meetings of interest, so I must, I think, doubly congratulate you, everybody who's come here tonight. Um, we know why you've come, so this is, you are enormously welcome, therefore, and it's my very great pleasure this evening to introduce you to Catherine Fox. Now I imagine most of you have come here because you know her novels. I have learned a great deal more about her today. She has, as one I suppose might expect, a degree in English from Durham University. She has a PhD in theology from um, King's College London and I think of the most impressive extra things she is a black belt at judo be careful with your questions (laughs) this evening you might run into trouble um we're going to um i think many of you will have seen that her books are on sale but i'll talk about those afterwards and her latest appointment is academic director of the manchester writing school at manchester metropolitan university and I have also learned that this is not a thing for people who think they might like to write. It is for writers who are already published, which again is rather impressive, I think. So um, we have a a woman, if I can say this kindly, a woman of width tonight. (laughs) Catherine.
1: Well, thank you very much for your warm welcome. Thank you for those kind words. Um, I think I must have confused you over the dinner table tonight. The, the staff are published authors. The students on our master's course are aspiring authors. So we do a lot of distance learning, a lot of uh, mature students. So if you have a novel in you, or a collection of poems in you, and you want help getting it out, we might be the people for you at the Manchester Writing School. Okay, so my title tonight, The Lynchester Chronicles, Blogging the Church and Brexit. Now this is because months in advance, if you, if you do speaking engagements, someone rings you up or emails you and says, what's the title of your talk? And you go, oh, I don't know, and you make something up. And then as the date comes closer, you, um, you, you go back into your inbox, and what did I say I was going to talk about? So... Uh, fortunately, it's something I, 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 still, I still am interested in talking to you about. Um, so off we go. Um, and just to head off, one of them, because I'm sure you, you will have questions later, one of the things I'm asked most often is this one Have you always wanted to be a writer, a novelist? And you can see from this, I've got a tiny screen up there, which I can also see. Um, that's a picture of me at the age of about 12 looking about 50 I reckon, anyway so do you, do you notice the national health glasses, did anyone else have national health, oh yes, blue frames, pink frames, mine were blue, um, so uh, and these are the novels that I wrote as, as a 11, 12 year old, at the top end of primary school, back in the day before um, the national curriculum, when children just went free range, following their own interests, <laughs> anyone remember that era, yes. Oh, those were the golden days. So I just basically I had to do five pages of maths a week, five pages of English exercises, five pages of free writing. So I'd kind of just write all week and then it would get to Friday afternoon, I would do five pages of maths, massive, great big letters. Um, and eventually one of my teachers said, You can't spend your whole time writing novels, Catherine. And I like to think I've proved Mrs. Curzon wrong. <laughs> But, uh, so that was the beginnings, you can see Runaway, slightly let down by my copy editor and proofreader there, with the spelling of the title, but logically it should be having two N's shouldn't it, otherwise it would be Runaway, which would be all wrong. Wildcats Gang, bold escapist tale about a gang of girls that used to go around beating up the gangs of boys, which is basically my life at the age of eleven. And all through secondary school, um, there were just too many lessons really of a rather dull nature, most of them, so I didn't really do much writing uh, in that period, or when I was at university when, uh, as an English student, I think I was training up my critical faculties, uh, and the result was any time I tried to write something, my inner critic would kind of look over my shoulder and say, who do you think you are, D. H. Lawrence, this is really contrived. So uh, I was so inhibited, I didn't really write very much, but I was still imagining stories in my head, and, and eventually that sort of came to fruition um, after I'd finished my doctorate um, in the novels that some of you might be familiar with. These are my first three novels. Anyone? Can anyone read these? I hope they're all falling apart. You loved them so much. I had great fun writing them, and at that stage I think I saw publishing as a kind of a, a golden portal. Or before, at, at, before, while I was still writing angels and men I I used to look ahead imagining this kind of gate I would pass through called publication after which everything would be wonderful, I would have arrived I would be a writer because before before you're published the first thing people ask you when you say that you're a writer is oh have you had anything published and they go no not yet I haven't And I thought this would be solved by getting something published. But now, of course, what happens is people say, "Oh, should I have heard of you? (laughs) And I'm always tempted to say, yes, actually, you should, really. Because I am very famous. (laughs) So I I wrote these three novels thinking I will just continue forever writing a a novel every two years, getting more and more famous and winning more and more prizes. Um, But what happened really was the opposite of that when I wrote my fourth novel it was a complete turkey it didn't get past my agent whose, whose um, uh, phrase I think was it is unpublishable and unsalvageable <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yes but never mind that was um, some 20 years ago now and whole days go by when I don't think about it um, laughter it was terrible back then, but I think really what had happened um, was that I'd used up my reservoir that I write out of, because I think what 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 big novels, good novels, are often they're kind of brewed up for quite a long time, um, and I think I just ransacked my biography, and and I it didn't stop me trying to write novels. I carried on, uh, kind of, you know, like there is a brick wall there. But if I run at it hard enough with my head, I'll probably get through. So that was, that was what it felt like for the next... From, from 20... No, from 2000, until my... Um, f- acts and Emissions, really. I was trying to write different novels. I, I, I wrote a teen fantasy novel, which is for sale out there, bargain price of £5. Pounds. Uh, if you have a young person in your life you think would enjoy it um, I, I wrote non-fiction, I did some journalism I wrote a book, a memoir about my quest to get a judo black belt um, but but still no novel I was, um, I, was I had a story in me. I knew I had it in me and every so often I would write the first few chapters and send it to my agent and he would go nah, nah, not really working um and that experience of of a long period of kind of lying fallow as a fiction writer was dismaying as you can imagine Um, and there were times when I just thought well I don't care anymore I I never wanted to be a writer anyway (laughs) but uh, uh, it's a a vocation I guess and and it won't let you alone and you just keep you think, no, that wall's still there, I'll, I'll, have, I'll come at it from another angle. <laughs> Maybe this time I'll knock it down. Um, and uh, this is clearly not just me, it's other writers as well. Here's a fantastic quote from uh, a writer who I'm very fond of, Annie Dillard. Has anyone come across any of her books? Uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek would be one. Really, really recommend that. Um, but this one's an extract from The Writing Life, which is a very short book but it somehow manages to distill not, not the craft, not the how to, there's loads of books out there on how to manage your characters and point of view, stuff like that the kind of nuts and bolts but this just kind of gets into what it feels like to try and to fail. So here's the quote, at its best the sensation of writing is that of any unmerited grace, it's handed to you but only if you look for it You search, you break your heart, your back, your brain, and then, and only then, it is handed to you. From the corner of your eye, you see motion. Something is moving through the air and headed your way. It is a parcel bound in ribbons and bows. It has two white wings. It flies directly at you. You can read your name on it. And I think in the end, that's where I got to, but it was after um, a long time of breaking my heart and my head and my back. And um, are there any Abby Lincoln fans here? singer Abby Lincoln, who died I think a couple of years ago? Um, definitely recommend, give her a Google and look on YouTube, particularly for this song which is called Throw It Away. Um, and if I was really technically savvy, I would now click and it would start playing but I've tried this before and I clicked and it's just like YouTube hasn't opened so I th- I'll just read you the words I think about the life I live a figure made of clay I think about the things I lost the things I gave away and when I'm in a certain mood I search the house and look one night I found these magic words in a magic book throw it away throw it away Give your love, live your life every single day and keep your hand wide open, let the sun shine through, because you can never lose a thing if it belongs to you. So I had this big story that I was failing to tell. It was about the sad story of, of, of a bishop with a secret who had a lapse (laughs) <laughs> this may be a bit of a spoiler for some of you who haven't read Acts and Emissions. Anyway, I think I, I'd t- been trying for years. I had the characters, I had the setting, I had the plot. I just didn't have the way of telling the story. So in the end, I just thought, do you know what, I give up. I just give up. I'm just going to ransack this resource that I've created, this world of the novel with all the people, and I'm going to just tell it like a soap opera, week by week. I'm going to blog it for free, I'll just give it away. Uh, and having decided to do that, I remember sitting in Liverpool Cathedral, and at this time my husband was Dean of the Cathedral, sitting um, in the uh, Eucharist. And it must have been January, when the, fir- the fir- day the first chapter went live, the sun was streaming in through the east window, which. Curiously faces south in Liverpool because that's Liverpool. Um, the sun was coming, and I thought, I bet this is the breakthrough. Wouldn't that be just typical? You know, I've tried, I've killed myself trying to write this story, and now I've just given up and just went shh, off it goes. I bet this is the breakthrough. And of course it was. Um, so here we are. This is what I ended up doing. Oh no, that was the despairing one, sorry. <laughs> that was me for years. That's the lesson that's normal for writers. Any writers here? Anyone recognise that? It's probably normal for people who do any work that's hard, that breaks their heart and their head and their back. Uh, maybe ministry. That might be, but, you know, not on a rest day. Rest days are a bit brighter than that usually. Okay. So, Barchester for the 21st century. The other thing I wanted to do, and had always kind of hankered after, was to be a Victorian novelist, and 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 just you know just to flat out tell my story. not not waste my time trying to write in in inverted commas good style the the current conventions of good writing show not tell I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute Um, so yeah the other thing I I, I thought I would do was just have fun being the omniscient narrator who intrudes into the narrative that's that's turned out to be Marmite some people love it and other people really hate it So (laughs) I can tell when when a review comes in on Amazon or Goodreads if it's got one star it's either going to be because of the language (laughs) or because of the omniscient narrator Um, and to have a big cast of characters um, and um not to, to have a, one central protagonist through whom the whole novel is mediated, which is what I was doing in my first three. Strong, central female protagonist, um, and everything it kind of comes through her perception. She can look at the other characters and surmise what they're thinking, but, but the narrative doesn't go into anyone else's head, um, which I think was, looking back, the structural flaw in, in the failed novel, um, how can you have a story about two, a relationship between two men that's kind of mediated by a strong central female protagonist <laughs> she spends her whole time with her ear to the wall um so it, it wasn't working anyway so it was just liberating just not to to think i i can't i must kind of remove myself as the author from this narrative i'm just going to be in there in the mix telling the reader Come along, dear reader. Come with me. We will go and visit so and so. I'm sorry, he's a bit drunk. You know that sort of thing. So I just—it was hugely liberating, um, and it was an opportunity, I think, to just to having filled the reservoir again to ransack my uh, um, autobiography once again to to write what I knew, which is the advice often given to writers: write what you know. So there we are, the Linchester Chronicles. Um, I spent many years in Lichfield. that's totally by-the-by, not relevant to anything we're talking about tonight. But I did get to know the Cathedral Close really well. Um, And the result of of that starting to write in serialised form um, were these two blogs. Did anyone actually read them as they were coming out weekly? Oh, good. Um, It's a slightly different experience um, writing serialised novels. Um, obviously, the sensible thing is to write the whole thing and then release it in weekly installments. Um, uh, and I think I was closest to doing that in the first one, in Accent Emissions, because I'd already written the story in, f- in a failed form before. Um, so I, I knew I knew what the story was, um, though it did undergo some changes when, when in in the, the writing of it as a lin- as as a blog. Um, it was clear that it wasn't going to be as sensational and scandalous. It was a sort of quieter comedy of manners, I think, than than I'd planned originally. Um, So that's closest to a conventional novel. Um, Unseen Things Above follows on logically, um, because at the end of the first novel, there is a vacancy in C, as we say, i.e. the bishop had resigned. Um, and So the obvious way to continue the plot was to ask... Perhaps, and I did map this slightly onto the Barchester Chronicles, um, who will be the next Bishop of Lynchester? And that offered a, a tremendous opportunity to satirise uh, um, the CNC processes uh, of the Church of England, um, a, a labyrinthine <laughs> processes and, and semi transparent, and, 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 but then, weirdly at the end, all the boom, shutters come down, total secrecy. So, it's a really rich field for a novelist. Um, but also to, um, to look at some of the hot potatoes in the Church of England, the, the debates around marriage and human sexuality, to, to use the novel as, as a space where you might explore that through a range of different characters. Um, um, and just to, I guess, to capture the church. In this time of quite rapid change. Um, and I had some rules because the rules really do help you to, to write. It's curious how constraints actually are what liberate you. Those of you who preach, if someone, isn't it your nightmare when you say, okay, what would you like me to preach? I they go, oh, whatever you like. No, come on! I want—I want a theme. Or they say, I want you to preach on the lectionary readings because because okay, at least it's narrowed it down a bit. But if you just got wide permission to write anything, it's much harder to to get started. So so constraints, um, uh, rules do help a, a novelist. So my rules were um, basically kind of unities of time, space, and action. So so if of time, it followed it followed. One, one year, the first one a year and the second one between um, Lent and Advent um, so so I didn't have to worry about what happened before or what was going to happen afterwards um, and it was con- confined to the Diocese of Lynchester, so if something was kicking off in London we could go, hey, can't go there so I didn't have to go and um, kind of spend time with the, with the narrative outside of the boundaries um, and the other one was... Uh, I decided I wasn't going to go into any bedrooms or boardrooms um, and that's not because I, I kind of haven't got the confidence to write about intimacy uh, those of you who have read my first novels will know that's not true, um, but it seemed to me that what I was trying to do, this kind of notion that I was sort of riffing on the theme of being a Victorian novelist um, a lot of the kind of hot action in Victorian novels happens off stage uh, and then, then a woman is shamed so we all infer, oh she must have had an affair um, but so, so I decided I would, I would respect that tradition and also I didn't want to go into boardrooms because I just thought that would be boring frankly um, okay so after the first one I said to my husband don't ever let me si- sign up for another one, this is just hell I just every week I'm stressed and I'm not going to do another one and and then by that time, I had a publisher who said, oh, will there be another one? I went, yes, of course there will. I'll write, I'll write another one. And then the second one was, the, I thought, but I won't write for a year. I'll, I'll write for a shorter space of time with longer chapters. And that was actually worse. So all the way through that one, I was saying to Pete, don't let me sign up for a third one. I'm not going to do a third one. This is really terrible. Um, and then my publisher said, is there going to be a third one? I went, yes, yes, I'll write a third one. Um, so I think I took a, a year off or something. Um, And then I decided, yes, I will start again in January and blog for a whole year. Um, I didn't have a plot for um, the third one, which have I got a picture of this? Oh, yes, there we go, Realms of Glory. Um, I had a theme, which is of heaven and hell and the final judgment. And I remember before I started blogging it I met uh, John Pritchard who's uh, at that stage, he may still be in fact um, head of the trustees of SPCK and he said is there going to be a third? I said yes there is and he said oh what's it about? I said well I don't really know but its themes are hell and (laughs) judgement and this worried look crossed his face and he said very anxiously but is there hope? (laughs) I said oh yes 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 there's always hope, there's always hope and the only plot strand I had really was that I knew that one character would die by the end and I would set that up in chapter one and then just fly by the seat of my pants for the rest of the book staying close to the characters and hoping the ideas would come really Um, and uh, yeah this is kind of how I thought it would go versus what actually happened (laughs) Now that's that's actually pretty normal for most novels. Some people do plan the whole thing in advance. And I think I remember reading somewhere that Iris Murdoch used to write the whole thing in her head and then she would go after a prolonged period of silence, I imagine. Hmm, good, that's finished. And then she would sit down and write it. Well, That's not how I work. (laughs) Um, And that's not how most of the writers I know work. Most people have a, a kind of a journey in mind, you know. Like before we had Google Maps, we would write down, you know, head for Aylesbury, then get on the M1 near Luton and head north, and you kind of end up in Durham. Um, but, but that was so. That was kind. That's sort of enough for mo, for most novelists. So that's kind of scary as well, because you think, you know, what if the roads closed, or, or what if I get lost? Um, but as you can see, after a convoluted journey, that, that novel ends up more or less where, where it was planned to go um, but um, I think in this particular instance, because it was very public it was, every week a, a chapter went went live if I, f- if I f- failed or, or if the, you know the road was blocked or I got lost then what was going to happen, I was just going to have to go, sorry I've I can't do it, I can't do it, I don't, know, I don't know where the story goes I've lost it, and that was a really kind of a, kind of a public, scary thing because most, most novels are written in private, so all the kind of agonising and tears and despair and throwing it in the bin um, and moaning to people, that's, that's all done in your lonely garret um, but this was, it was just, it was out there already and I said I must have been completely mad I have no plot but this was of course 2016 so a plot was forthcoming to some extent handed to me by the unfolding political events Um, but this is sort of what it felt like ooh hang on where are we oh yes I seem to have I think I've added a scre- added a slide in here, but I haven't got it. In my- oh, yeah. Okay, that's. It seems to be out of order. Did a whole load of slides buzz through by quickly? No. So what does that say? It says two approaches to blogging a novel. Oh, it's okay. No, we're we're on we're on schedule. <laughs> so this is the sensible the sensible way. Write yes, write the novel and release it in weekly installments. Or if you're a complete lunatic, this is what you do: write live. Um, yeah. And that's what it felt like. Um, So I took this photograph in January in Liverpool. Um, And again, anyone been to Liverpool? Anyone lived in Liverpool? I I just gave up saying to myself, what on earth is going on here? Because in the end you just had to go, hey, it's Liverpool. So this is a guy on a tightrope playing a violin and smiling. And, and this was in the week, It was, I think it was in January, just after the Anglican primates had met. Does anyone remember this? And, and the result was that the American Episcopalian Church was sort of put on the naughty step for breaking ranks on... Do you remember this? Sort of, it was massive at the time, especially if you were on Twitter, when Twitter was just sort of molten with people, really upset, really angry. Um, and, and I was... So that was kind of like a a shot across the bows of what 2016 was going to be like for me blogging I hadn't, you know, they were just going to be all kind of recovering from hangovers at, from New Year's parties and a little sort of gentle comedy but I, could, I knew the characters would have been talking about this so I had to put it in the novel and I thought oh, how am I going to make this, how am I going to um, capture this in a way that's, that's kind of realistic but respectful and trying to capture both sides of the debate um, and that's what I felt I was doing—totally exposed, very precarious, but still trying to play my violin and smile at the same time. Um, but the, and as as the year went by, with the hot, you know celebrities dying, terrible atrocities. When I came to edit the whole book afterwards, I thought, do you know what? I'd forgotten that happened—the the the, the, the um, shooting in a nightclub in America. The the. Um, the lorry or van ploughing into pedestrians in France and I thought all that happened in that year and it stopped feeling like a tightrope like, like if he fell off he he'd, perhaps he'd break a collarbone but it began to, began to feel like a, a tightrope between high-rise buildings or across the Ni- Niagara Falls and I, that's kind of very dramatic I mean the worst that could have happened is I would have just gone sorry I'm stopping blogging but it felt like a real responsibility and quite precarious, or more like walking on water. Um, I come back to those narratives again and again. Um, when when Jesus comes, you know they're in a storm and they're just like just following the last set of instructions, rowing hard. Storm comes up, then w- even worse, the worst thing you can think of is say, a flipping ghost coming across the water at you. And then no, it's it's right, it's, right, it's Jesus. And then you think, okay, okay, it's Jesus, it's fine. And then Peter goes, "If it is you, Lord." <laughs> Not, come and join us in the boat, which would commend itself as a sensible thing to say. Like, Bid me come to you across the water. <laughs> and said, okay, come. And, and, and I felt like, well, why am I doing this? He's completely lunatic. But while he's still looking at Jesus, it's okay. It's when you look at the waves and you start thinking, this is impossible, I don't know how I'm doing this. That's when he started to sink. But of course there was a helping hand, all the same. So, I had a sort of methodology that I clung to. Oh yes, this is the other important thing. To those of you who followed it and commented each week, um, it made it much less lonely that each week, I knew that there were people who were with me, wanting, wanting more of the story, wanting it to succeed, wanting to know about the characters. Um, and waiting to hear what I had to say. So that did make a huge difference. Okay, so next slide. Oh, yes. So you probably can't really read that. That's just just an example of the kind of notes that I took as I was going along. Um, They're just sort of thumbnail. Some of it are just things I saw out of the train window or or out and about. Um, Puddles, all trout ringed with rain. Oh, that's rather nice, isn't it? Um, And then, um, what does that say? Rowan blossom oh then, oh, flip, exams trying to keep tabs on all the characters Leah would have been sitting her sats um, and then, then plot strands about what's going on in the restructure in the cathedral um, and street pastors But you say so this was um, chapter 20 chapter 25 was when the, the ref, referendum happened absolutely not a concern of mine to talk about the referendum in chapter 20 it wasn't really on my radar then I hadn't set it up um, because I, like many of us, thought, OK, we're having a referendum, uh, it would just put an end to all, all the Eurosceptics. That's what I thought would happen. Um, but as you know, that was not the case. <laughs> so, this slide here um, is something else I've come back to time and again. Because because all I could do in those weeks of blogging when the political landscape just changed overnight was um, to stay close to my characters, always ask what, what would they be doing, how would they be reacting and just to hold my nerve and basically just to listen and sit and wait. So I spent a long time on my bench in the garden just crying basically, thinking I can't do this. I can't do this but then just trusting and I I come back to this repeatedly that the words are there in the one who is the word because he is enough I'm not enough for this task but he is enough Um, this is a set of caves in Lanzarote anyone been to Lanzarote yeah anyone been down the caves in Lanzarote okay so I went this was years ago when my boys were small um, went around this wonderful set of caves um, and uh, when we got to the end um, the, the guide said to us now stand back from the edge people this is very very deep okay? so I'd like, wh- what we're going to do is, is just this big hole which we kind of like and you, you know how you get vertical on the edge of a, a, a really um, great drop um, so what we're going to do is throw, drop a stone down and then we're all going to count. I want you to be very quiet. Drop it. And we're going to count and see how many seconds before we hear it hit the bottom. Do I have a volunteer? Because my son's like yes. Got a stone. And he said, "Okay, wait. Shh, silence, everybody. Okay, throw the stone down." And uh, he went like this. And then everyone went, "Whoa! What just happened?" Because it wasn't a drop at all. It was a a shallow pool, reflecting the height of the cavern above. And what happened was the reflection just shattered like that. Everybody kind of recoiled, like you know, like a broken window or something. And then we all laughed. And she said, "Oh, just kidding. It's it's not a drop at all. It's really it's just a puddle." Um, And somehow I've kind of hung on to that—that that that you 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 know something comparatively small can reflect something um, completely enormous. I hear the example of something completely enormous, Liverpool Cathedral. Um, has anyone been in it? It's like nothing else, isn't it? It's just <laughs> like something, like a part of a set for the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, I, you know, like the Caves of Moria. <laughs> um, so, and as you approach it, you can see it for miles, right? if you, you can actually see it from St. Bino's... Um, uh, what's it called? Convent? Convent? retreat house, anyway you can see it, you can on a clear day, you can see it from Wales uh, it's enormous, you feel tiny inside it, so it, what I felt like I was trying to do in blogging was was kind of capture, get my head around that capture that uh, and I walked past it every day I opened my windows and looked out and you could just see a bit of it the and the bells you know, it was just like that. the air shook with the sound of it Um, and everything about Liverpool Liverpool Cathedral is massive so then one day I was um, just going out of my front door and I saw this it had been raining, bright sunny day and there's the whole tower in half an inch of water and I thought okay, fair enough I may feel very small and very shallow but if, I, if I'm still for long enough I will be able to capture that reflection and something of the size of it um, so I commend that to you as a sermon illustration, <laughs> feel free um, okay so this is the one, because my eyesight's not very good this is one, I th- the rogue slide I thought had popped up earlier, it's this question now, or shall I do that mean sing? I'd like you to turn if you would to the person sitting next to you and discuss this, no I won't do that But if you... I mean, that's not... What is a novel, though? I mean, just off the top of your head. How would you... If you had to define it, what would you say? A story? Yeah. A film could be a story, though, couldn't it? hmm. So, of course, the first port of call is the Oxford English Dictionary. A fictitious prose narrative of book length, typically representing character and actions with some degree of realism <laughs> you can it's, you can always sense they're kind of like this big maybe kind of like this it's, there's no it's not like a sonnet where you can actually define what a sonnet is you might go into subdivisions whether it's shakespearean or petrarchan but basically 14 lines certain rhyme scheme but a novel, it's just like, blah, goes on and on, doesn't it? Uh, where are the boundaries? What, what, what are we doing when we're trying to write a novel? It's not so very obvious, I don't think. So let's, look, let's ask someone else. Joseph Conrad, what is a novel, if not a conviction of our fellow men's existence, strong enough to take upon itself a form of imagined life, clearer than reality and whose accumulated of verisimilitude of reflected episodes puts to shame the pride of documentary history what indeed, Joseph <laughs> that's a, a little bit unwieldy <laughs> not to say flamboyant um, so here's my favourite definition this is Milan Kundera unbearable lightness of being, I don't know if anyone read that in the 80s remember the bowler hat most people remember that bit um, a novel is a meditation on existence seen through imaginary characters the form is unlimited freedom I, I, used to, I sometimes run this past my MA students say would you agree with that and in the end they went yes but we'd, have to, we'd say it's got to be in prose and I said ha ha what about novels that are written in verse and they went oh ok um, um And I think I had to come back to that definition when I was writing Realms of Glory because I was, in fact, fashioning a slightly new fictional form, um, writing episodically, but right up to the wire. So if you think about Middlemarch, also written episodically, um, published in 1870-ish, but it's looking back 40 years. So she had the good sense to write about political hot potatoes that we all knew how it ended. We all knew about the second reform bill. Uh, it, was not, it was not like, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen next week. How can I possibly write this? Um, and I did find that, that some of the comments on my blog, I had a, one person coming back to me saying, basically, stop doing this. Um, you're you're doing this kind of interesting theological meditation and you've got characters who are just getting weaker and weaker. It's just not working. And unfortunately, that was just like, boom! (laughs) It was right on the target of my own insecurities about what I was doing. Like, why are you you mad? You haven't got a plot. Um, But I think it was just that sense of... I was meditating on existence in Britain in 2016 through the medium of my imaginary characters and the form was this slightly strange meditation and action and character. Um, and, and I did think maybe I'll, when I come to edit the whole thing, I'll, I'll redraft it, but in fact I didn't. Um, and I think um, one of the things that a novel brings to the table in, in terms of political um, and social discourse is that it's something of a safe place? Um, oh, I meant to look up who said this. <laughs> it's a brilliant quote if you kind of uh, inclusivise it. A book is the one is the only place in which you can examine a fragile thought without breaking it, or explore an explosive idea without fear it will go off in your face. It is one of the few havens where a person's mind can get both provocation and privacy. I think that's it, isn't it? Because you can read a novel and, and through looking at, getting into the heads of other characters who you profoundly disagree with, begin to think, I still disagree with you, but I kind of see where you're coming from. Or, I, I disagree with you, but I, I like and sympathise with you. Or, I really dislike you, I do not sympathise with you, with you but I do agree with you (laughs) Um, and also you can so I have had people come to me and say through reading your novels um, people from quite a conservative background saying although I'm quite clear on the gay issue I began to see it's about real people it's not just about biblical interpretation and I rather meanly said well they're not real Um, she said well you know what I mean um, but it, so so something can happen in this safe space, and because you read it by yourself, you know it's not like you tweet about it and then everybody just piles in and says you can't say that, you racist, or whatever the sort of normal polite discourse that happens on on social media. Um, so so that anxiety, like I would like to, I would like to venture a new thought without being shouted at, because I do think our our, our perhaps our political system. Um, with the two halves of the House of Commons, is sort of set up adversarially, isn't it? So to find a space where you can explore new ideas is is a, a is a quite kind a of precious thing. Um, so that you and it can challenge you. A novel can make you rethink your 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 stance on things, not by hectoring you, um, or or by um, having a hidden agenda. I don't like novels that have those because you can usually spot the hidden agenda and resist it. Um, So here's uh, what George Eliot um, had to say. Art is the nearest thing to life. It is a mode of amplifying experience and extending our contact with our fellow men beyond the bounds of our own personal lot. So you might think, I just don't know what it's what it must have been like to grow up gay in Ireland in the thirties. There's probably a novel you can find. Or well, I don't know what it's like to live in the aftermath of uh, genocide. There are novels that, that you, I mean you can research it, but, but what, what, is it actually, what did it feel like? How can I extend my empathy, extend my sense of knowing what it's like to be someone else? Um, and I think novels just ideally placed to do that. Um, and I was very pleased when I came across this quote from President Obama. This was when he was in dialogue with Marilyn Robinson, a novelist whose work you might be familiar with. Um, and, and he said this: "When I think about how I understand my role as citizen, setting aside being president, and the most important set of understandings that I bring to the position of citizen." The most important stuff I've learned, I think I've learned from novels. Yes! (laughs) It's to do with empathy. It has to do with being comfortable with the notion that the world is complicated and full of greys. That there's still truth there to be found, but that you have to strive for that and work for that. And the notion that it's possible to connect with someone else, even though they're very different from you. And I think that's just put so very beautifully. Um, so what am I trying to do when I, when I write? Um, I'm, I'm not consciously trying to do theology or convert people. So this rather odd image here um, is one I came up with when I was challenged um, in the same week, interestingly, by two very different um, eminent churchmen um, who, who said uh, one was very worried about the... Um, message of the, the underlying ideology of my book, which was to promote the gay, uh, gay rights. It, and, and then the other person was lamenting the fact that I seemed to understand the, the plight of gay people so well, but I wasn't commending equal marriage. I thought, ah, <laughs> maybe I got it right then if I managed to offend both of you in the same novel. Um, because the novels aren't really about sets of uh, propositional truth or, or as a campaigning vehicle um, or as a means of proselytising. Um, and what, what I ha- have had to hang on to is the idea that I'm not here to provide answers really not so this is my, I, I feel like the novel or, or, or Linchester the diocese of Linchester is kind of like an orchard, a small space uh, but, but within that I've suspended this, this sphere metal sphere that overnight what's in the air condenses on it and it is kind of gathered, it's distilled out of the air and that's, that's where the novels come from. Um, I've just got my eye on the time. Um, yep, so... Oh, there's just quickly, a poem from Mary Oliver. Any Mary Oliver fans here? Um, this is from A Thousand Mornings. It's called The Man Who Has Many Answers. The man who has many answers is often found in the theatres of information where he offers graciously his deep findings, while the man who has only questions to comfort himself makes music." And I think that's really what I'm doing. I comfort myself with my characters, trying to make music through the novel um, and and meditate upon the state we find ourselves in. Um, And as I hinted earlier, when it came to the referendum, I, I woke up belatedly to the fact that this was this was a biggie um, and, and I thought okay, so which of my characters would be voting leave and I looked and I thought not a single one of my central characters the significant characters I have not, I've been really careful to cover the spectrum of church politics I've, I've just been blindsided by this um, uh, and I'm moving towards a new narrative, Lynchester narrative that I'm working on at the moment which is to some extent trying to uh, correct that balance um, and to take seriously the extent to which we are a divided nation yet still have many things in common, uh, a heart to love one another and to work things out. Um, and just to close I'm going to read you a little extract from, from that Chapter 25, which, which was, um, as you know, if those of you read the book, uh, written, it, 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 brilliant, as if I'd plotted it, or as if the politics had conspired with me in the structure of my novel. It lands halfway, boom, chapter 25 out of 50. Uh, it's just like, like the hinge of the novel, the referendum. I'll just read you, um, I think, because I can see I've run out of time. Um, the very end bit which normally um, up until this point when there was a kind of med- meditation I'd filtered it through a character but, but on this occasion it just felt somehow that the narrative voice needed to break cover and stand almost prophetically on the parapet and, and, and speak out about what, what it felt like that week I wrote half of that chapter before the referendum result came out because I knew I wouldn't be able to capture it afterwards because we'd know the answer. Um, So the sun comes up over this green and pleasant diocese hay lies in sodden windrows a slit of sky runs along a water channel through a field as though the world might split in half the wind stirs shoals of silver-backed leaves on the trees and a magpie flies up, wings a blur of light. The bowing grass heads are all light. The river running is light. The church spires rearing, the sheep grazing, the cars driving, they are all light. The children playing, people walking, working, shopping, begging, light. All we see is light, not the things, but the light bouncing off them, nothing but light. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. This is how it ends, nothing but the light, streaming back at us from future glory. No words or truths or facts of ours can comprehend it. And yet it is always breaking into our darkness through that tiny pinhole where the two lines intersect on a green hill far away where a cross marks the spot. Thank you very much.